By most measures, we consider the Aztecs, Mayans, and Incans to be more advanced societies than the nomadic Native American tribes to their north. But if we take some time and examine this belief, we quickly see that our understanding of progress might be in need of an update. After hundreds of years of ruling their respective empires, it took only a matter of months for conquistadors to topple some of the planet's most advanced societies. After toppling the major Latin American empires, these conquistadors went north where they encountered the Apache tribe, whose dwellings were far less grandiose than Machu Picchu, Tenochtitlan, Inca Pirca, Chichen Itza, Tikal, and the many of other marvels of these ancient cultures. The conquistadors could not topple these savage societies. How come? One word. Decentralization. The Incans, Mayans, and Aztec cultures were highly hierarchical, so all Cortez, Pizarro, Balboa, Alvarado, and their colleagues had to do was kill the king to conquer the people. When these same conquistadors stumbled upon the Native Americans, their strategy no longer worked. The Native Americans lived in largely flat communities, and power was distributed far more equally based on merit than lineage. So if a chief was killed, a new chief assumed the position for said tribe, and the people's culture and way of life carried on. The decentralized nature of many Native American tribes ensured their way of life would continue. Their decentralized societies provided them the flexibility, resilience, and strength needed to survive the chaos and volatility life presented them. Fast forward to today. It is much different than the 15th through 18th centuries, no doubt, and there is so much wisdom we can extract from the past. And that's just what a new breed of social innovators are doing. Applying the principles of decentralization to legacy structures to build a more resilient society that we can better navigate these chaotic times. Today's guest is one of these social innovators. His name is Piers Rudyard. Piers is a serial entrepreneur tinker and technologist. In today's conversation, we explore his current work and the traits needed to be a successful social innovator and entrepreneur in the climate of constant change. Now, before we bring him on, there's a disclaimer. In today's conversation, there's some jargon that gets dropped along the way, the first and foremost being DLT. DLT is Distributed Ledger Technology, and this is a simple idea with profound implications. Simplified to the max, DLT, Distributed Ledger Technology, is a shared, immutable, time-stamped, accessible spreadsheet that can hold all sorts of information. DLT and blockchain can be used interchangeably. Piers, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here. So uh, David Siegel introduced us moments ago. He said, you are brilliant. I see David is brilliant. So he said, I had to talk to you. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, who are you? What are you doing? So uh, my name is Piers Ridiard. I am the CEO of Radix DLT. Uh, and Radix is a new protocol. Um, the easiest way of thinking about it is like, a, um, like Ethereum. In terms of we've got smart contracts, we have a trustless, permissionless network, um, but very scalable and also um, very easy to build on, which we think is really important. 
And, and why is uh, this so important to you? Well, it's sort of a multiplier effect. The technology allows you to get to where you want to go. And for us, our vision is to give anyone, anywhere, friction-free access to the digital economy, right? And what that means is anyone who, if you, if you want to be part of the global economy that is rapidly digitizing, um, and it gives this, it lowers barriers to entry in sort of every frame of life. Like if you look at how the internet has democratized access to information, which means that more people are more informed and more educated. What DLT is doing is democratizing access to the transfer and ownership of value in a digital sense. So, you know, right now it is a privilege to own a bank account. It's a privilege to own insurance. It's a privilege to be able to invest. Mm -hmm. And it's a privilege that a very large proportion of the world population doesn't have access to. And for us, what you're doing here is giving people the tools to enable those people to be onboarded into the global economy in a meaningful way, to be able to compete on a global stage, to be able okay. to contribute on a global stage. And the way you do that is by giving tools to visionaries, to developers, to entrepreneurs who want to build for this vision. So we're like the next level down. We're the foundation upon which people can build their vision on top of it to enable our vision of giving anyone anywhere friction-free access to the digital economy. Okay, so a, lo a lot of us humans, we think in uh, pictures and metaphors, and uh, as you're talking, I'm saying, would you describe yourself as maybe like the concrete, the roads, yes. the rails upon which all this other innovation, whether they be cars, bikes, trains, is yes, developed? Yes, that, that's a really good way of putting it. Okay, yeah. okay, that's helpful. Yeah. So um, you guys are off to a great start. Fast forward five years down the road, you're still kicking butt. What, what are consumers seeing that's different in our day-to-day -day lives? Yeah, so I think that um, that's a really good question. Do you, do you want me to answer that for Radix specifically or just in generally where I think the DLT space is going to go? Let's go DLT space. You've okay. got a very interesting perspective. So Okay, so I feel like technology creeps up on us, right? It, 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 it starts off as being revolutionary, but no one's using it. And it becomes right. every day and everyone's using it. And it becomes boring by that point. Five years time, I don't see DLT as being boring yet. I think the internet has become every day to people and is so much frame of part of life. No one's yeah. excited by the internet. You don't hear anyone saying, hey man, my computer got connected to the internet. <laughs> right. Like everyone is connected to it. Um, it at least in the in the in the Western world in mm -hmm. the in the rich course, yeah. countries, um, I still think it is immensely exciting to people who have not been connected to the internet before. So, I I it's going to be start going through a transition. I think that the main way in which people are going to be touching DLT, the everyday person, is actually going to be in non fungibles and digital collectibles. Like, um, you game. Do you mm -hmm. game? Yes. Do you, oh, do you play games on your phone? Not, not on the phone. Do you I, play them on your computer? On uh, Xbox. Okay, on the Xbox. Mostly sports games, though. So it's no, a little no, bit that, different. No, that's fine. But, okay. like, anything that you do in a game is it, you, get, you have provable effort that you've put into it, right? And you unlock achievements. Right. And more and more, you also receive digital items, right? Trophies, acknowledgments, badges, exactly. so on and so forth. All those yeah, kind of yeah. things. And then if you play something like... Call of Duty or uh, Fortnite, you, you get skins and you get like in-game items. Mm -hmm. Those things are going to all be 
on on a DLT, they're all going to be non-fungibles mm -hmm. that people can now trade. They now have a representation of the effort that they've put in that has real world value that they can then exchange with other people. And this happens at the high end, right? Right. Super rare items can be traded and and bought and sold for money but it doesn't really have much liquidity lower down mm -hmm. and i think that you're going to see monetization or the 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 representation of these things that are difficult to achieve or get or gain made into things that can then be traded or owned by people okay. that will that will sort of slowly seep into people's lives because if you've installed an application, you've installed a game on your phone or on your Xbox or on your computer, you already have a place for a wallet. You don't have to have gone, oh, I need to download a wallet. Right. You intrinsically have a user base of installed wallets that can hold these crypto assets because guess what? Wallets are just a public-private key and a way of keeping that key safe and then doing the signing and understanding how to address the ledger. Mm -hmm. That's pretty low-level, pretty basic stuff. We don't, like, the game developer doesn't have to think about how's my game going to connect to the internet. Right. Right? right. And the same thing is, is they're not going to have to think about how do the, uh, my users hold these digitally unique items. They'll just okay. be something that is a toolbox that's built into the game. And that's where I think, for me, the everyday person will start to really get a sense of the value of DLT in an abstract sense. Like, mm -hmm. oh my God, I've got like this rare Pokemon yeah. and I've collected it and I can I actually own it. It's mine and I can then trade it to someone else for something else. So, And I'm really curious about what the behavior changes on the human side of things once we have these tools. Because there's all these technologies implemented, but the founders of these organizations, the engineers behind these programs, apps, they don't know how humans are going to use it. Yeah. Could Mark Zuckerberg have ever predicted our newfound tendency to share so much information? But does 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 Facebook look sizably different from what it was at the start? It, from a from a from a like a, a thousand mile view. I don't think it looks sizably different, but I don't think that the creators of it could have predicted how we were going to engage with it. I agree. I agree. But I, I think that like what this technology is all about and I always go back to our mission statement is like it, it is removing friction I think that people already interact with these systems in a similar way like I can already buy characters um, in World of Warcraft I can mm -hmm. already trade skins from Call of Duty but right. it's difficult and there's lots of intermediaries and it's right. costly and it doesn't it doesn't it, it's friction full so it only really works for the high value items mm -hmm. this is all about just making it much more liquid and in a very real way your attention on facebook right your likes or your your hearts on instagram or your swipes on tinder or whatever it else is an interaction with a service from a human point of view does yeah. have value does have value to the company and I think that will also start to be recognized more start to be pushed back more because you can now with these systems yeah uh, as you're speaking I'm getting excited so you're obviously very passionate about this stuff um, why where did this come from <sighs> uh, that's a really interesting question like my my background like is super varied I originally went to university to do aerospace engineering okay. uh, I wanted to be an engineer because I loved the idea of building things. Um, and then I um, and then I started building like companies. My first company was a company called Lightscape, um, which m made large scale um, volumetric 3D displays. 
okay. um, which sounds much more complicated than it is. In reality, it was a couple of pieces of six foot by four foot stage decking uh, suspended apart from each other by um, pieces of scaffolding, uh-huh. and then we drilled ten thousand holes and threaded uh, and threaded like semi-transparent rubber through those holes, so that they were strings held taut, right, like a Top guitar to bottom. string, yep. right. And then we took three projectors and we projection mapped the projections onto the lines that the strings formed. So then what we could do is we could light up a pixel, but in, vol- in, in 3D space, right? So it had height, width, height, height, length, and depth. So you had X, Y, Z coordinates. Yeah. So you had voxels, volumetric pixels. So you could then create 3D objects appear in very low resolution 3D objects. Yeah. So we, so we built that and I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And much more fun than what I was doing in engineering, which was, uh-huh not creating new things, but solving, but optimizing existing things. So it was like, here's a wing and it's got this particular drag. How do we reduce the drag on this wing? Right. Like that's not as interesting for me. It's incremental. It's incremental. I don't, yeah, yeah. I I never really got on with that. So I was like, I like this thing of creating new things. Yeah. So let, I'll, I'll change my degree completely. So I changed to Chinese in business, which is a massive change, uh, and learnt Mandarin Chinese, went and lived in China for a year, came back, and then I did my CFA level one, my Chartered Financial Analyst exam. Okay. Uh, and then I ended up having two, two job offers when I left university, JP Morgan Front Office Debt Capital Markets, which is investment banking, and then law, Linklaters to do law. Um, and uh, I actually ended up doing both. I went to uh, J.P. Morgan for a little bit, and then and then was like, no, this isn't for me. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to Linklaters, uh, and they put me through law school, and I did GDL and LPC, and and then I accidentally started a consumer electronics company. <laughs> <laughs> so these like all these little pieces like just ended up fitting together sort of finance law building things like sort of creating something from nothing the problem of like planning logistics for 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 things like manufacturing consumer electronic yeah. devices um building your own companies and sort of all the, th- the stuff that comes out of that and then crypto came into the mix in sort of late uh, very early 2015 when someone came to me and said hey there's this thing called mining um Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. There's this new thing called Ethereum. Um, oh, and by the way, there's a thing called blockchain. I'm like, okay, there's a lot to learn. Um, um, you know a bit about hardware, consumer yeah. electronic hardware. Can you go and find what, what? Can you have a look to see what kind of hardware we could buy to put into mining rigs to mine Ethereum? Right. Yeah. Right. I, you you got to go down the rabbit hole while to get it. So so went down went yeah. really went down that rabbit hole. Like uh, read the dagger uh, the the dagger Hashimoto hashing algorithm paper. Started looking at hardware. Came like came across the AMD um, graphics cards, and we built some mining rigs and started mining on the Genesis block of Ethereum. And then I was like, I should probably learn a bit more about this technology, right? Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that sort of. My like you 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 get that brain explosion at several different points. There's the the fundamental technology point, which is interesting, but then there's the what does that enable? Right. And the first thing that sort of came from that was this concept of the DAO, the decentralized autonomous organization. Before the DAO happened and the hack happened, mm-hmm. like there was already this amorphous concept in the in the in the crypto um, community about. DAOs being these these solutions to so many things. So that was when we started looking at insurance. 
We were like, look, the concept of insurance is a collective, right? We have the, the premiums of the many paying for the claims of the few. Right. What if you could create a subset of rules that defined an insurance contract that could pay out for something like crop insurance, but the crop insurance paid out only based on meteorological data, right? I know what the rainfall in an area is. If yeah. you bought insurance in that area for your crops and the rainfall falls below a certain point, I know your crops will have failed. It's an automatic payout. You don't have to make a claim. You don't have to do anything like that. You can just Brilliant. make automatic, real time, real time, based, real time based yeah. insurance. Um, wow. And and that was that was the first like. Th- there's so much potential here, yeah. um, so much potential to do good, and to actually help. Um, bring the world into what I didn't realize then but was just this concept of the digital economy yeah like how do you how do you onboard people and make like if you can give someone education and a means to transact with the world then you give them the means to become a global citizen you give them the means to actually start to earn beyond just their little village or just their little town or just their country whatever their confines are the regulations right. that inhibit them right the yeah. only thing that then becomes there then becomes essentially your basic constraints like do you have enough food is your nutrition sufficient mm-hmm. Are you in danger of your life? Are you in a situation such that you're not under constant stress, threat and fear of death that means that you can't concentrate on anything else than survival? Yeah. And do you have safe um, place to sleep? Right? This is the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy. That's the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy of leads. But an ability to transact with the world and an access to all information that the world has then gives you the ability to work up from there wherever you are in the world. Yeah, to reach that self-actualization tip. Right. Yeah. That's exciting stuff. So uh, I'm curious, you've, had a, you've been an entrepreneur in a few different spaces and now you're in the blockchain space. Right. This is pretty, uh, pretty much the Wild West. It has been, I imagine, since you've been involved. Um, we listened to David Siegel's keynote the other night talking about the eight drivers of change and he says we are just more and more going towards a VUCA future volatile uncertain chaotic and ambiguous so uh, what is it like to be a social innovator on the on the sand that's you know constantly shifting so uh, the ability to predict the future becomes more difficult the more um, uncertain the present is I, I completely agree with that I think there's still s- certain principles that we can that we can hold true about how we interact with the world though right okay. you can hold principles of um, a belief that humanity should perpetuate itself in a way that maximizes something other than just survival, right? It Mm -hmm. should perpetuate itself in a way that maximizes um, happiness or contentment, but that perpetuation should be part of that. Now, if if you take those two concepts together and you say, look, what we're doing with the environment is directly against perpetuation, yeah. Then we should stop doing that. Like, if we have a decision, if we have any decision tree that has an impact for humanity, I think we can always go back to those two segments: perpetuation and optimization for happiness. Mm-hmm. And if those two things 
are not conflicted by an output of that decision, then you can still move forwards. You just need principles by which you make decisions in an increasingly uncertain world. But we collectively first have to decide either individually or in groups or as a, or as a global society as a whole, have to decide what those basic principles are. Because yeah. once you have those, it doesn't matter how uncertain things become or how volatile things become, you still have a basis for making good decisions on right. what comes in. You can be more static and stable as the individual in these, the winds of change. Right. Yeah. So uh, decentralization, this is a key tenant of, I imagine, what Radix is doing, the entire blockchain movement. When you introduced yourself, you said you're the CEO of Radix. Mm. CEO connotes leadership. And I'm really curious, like, what does leadership look like in decentralized organizations, in the field of uh, individual empowerment? So if you could speak to that. It, it changes um, over time because... You start off with a technical problem and you move on to a, um, a social problem, right? Mm -hmm. The technical problem is how do we solve this really difficult technical issue, right? And that requires concentration and decisive action. Like you have to be like, given the information I have, this is the direction we're going to move. It may be wrong right long term mm, right. but we need to decide to move forwards to increase our overall understanding of a area that is not well understood right this is at the forefront yeah. of technology at the forefront of computer science so you need to build test iterate right and that requires a small team with a with a clear vision and a, an ability to problem solve but also make decisions, mm -hmm. right? They, they have to problem solve. There has to be constructive debate. There has to be yeah. the ability to challenge, but there does also have to be a point where someone or somehow you go, this is the decision, right. and this is the direction we're moving, right? right? Then you get to, when, once that system then becomes part and integral fabric of society in some format, right, which is what our hope long-term for Radix is, that it becomes this fabric that society can rely upon, that society can use as part of the fundamentals of how we build forward humanity, like, then you need to have a different frame of mind for governance. You, you're then looking at who are all the stakeholders in this system? How do you give yeah. them voices that are fair? And how do you in create a shared social contract between them so that everyone can go I mean like was being talked about earlier from an adversarial model to a collective model like what is the best what is what works best for the system when viewed as a whole and how do you make sure those voices are all surfaced and the agreements can be made that really comes into how you design the governance model long term for your platform and where do we can we look for existing models of this either in the uh the biological settings or the organizational settings? Um, yeah, I think the systems of government, uh, to some extent, can be, can be drawn upon. You have something that is not in itself revenue generating, but mm -hmm. is a enabler for the success of a group of people, in this case, the citizens of the country, right? Yeah. And you want to, you, you're constantly balancing the desires of the individual against the desires of the corporations, against the desires, um, against the need for things like the rule of law and for justice and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that what we've had so far in the crypto space is emergence uh, of self-emergence of governance, right? Mm -hmm. So like with Bitcoin, 
because there was no governance framework put in place, you ended up with an emergence of governance, and the emergence of governance turned out to be the miners, because the miners controlled the protocol and they made the decision as to whether or not something was adopted. Right. So simple things that seemed to be an obvious next step, like increasing the block size, mm -hmm. ended up being a debate that has raged until today. Yeah, And so I think that you... If you look at the biological emergence of governance, these systems are often too large and too complex to be able to just say, oh, it will happen. You need to look at the way in which you create checks and balances in the system that ensures that no one stakeholder is trampled on for the interests of another at the exclusion of all else. Mm -hmm. So stepping outside of the blockchain space, where are you seeing uh, social innovation that you think is going to be wildly impactful in the years to come? Yes, I mean, stepping outside of the blockchain space is difficult yes. um, <laughs> to do. I, so I love the microfinance movement. I, I know that some people think it is flawed um, in some cases, but I, I think that conceptually... Again, this comes back down to, you know, sort of the ability to be part of an economy. And in some cases, that is the ability to have startup capital to start earning revenue. Microfinance yeah. makes a lot of sense for that. Um, I, I, I'm really interested in UBI. Um, looking long term, I, strong AI worries me uh, as mm -hmm. a concept in that in a purely capitalistic system, you have essentially a gravity well as soon as a strong AI is created. Because what we have is a meritocracy right now, or we like to think that we have a, a kind of meritocracy. Most people, like at least Americans and a lot of other people say, you know, you do really well, you are better than everyone else, then you should earn outsized rewards. But guess what? Strong AI will be better than everyone at everything. Right. So if you have a gravity well of capital to that, you then essentially draw everything out of the system, right? Hmm. That thing becomes yeah. the owner of all capital. Um, and this is sort of like, this is, this is to some extent a, a slippery slope argument. There are, there are arguments that people could say that a strong AI would also understand the importance of the ecosystem itself and wouldn't draw anything or everything out because there needs to be transactions for there to be the increase in value and the growth of GDP, sure. But ultimately, if you haven't set a, if, you, if you haven't set up something potentially that looks like UBI, right? Mm -hmm. you may end up in a scenario where our very system of capital endeavor, capital, capitalist endeavor, may actually endanger everyone because we, through our own brilliance, have built something that is able to outbrilliance us and thus yeah. attract all capital. Yeah. And UBI, for the listeners, is a universal basic income. It's been tested in a few different geographies. And uh, with that, there's become a lot of studies around it. Some people say it's the future. Some people are creating some critiques around the new data. Right. I'm curious what your response would be to the critics of UBI. Yeah, so uh, there, there's a number of critiques. What, which is the one which, which are you... Um, I, I think the latest study I read was uh, about the results from Sweden. Okay. And that um, people continued to do revenue-generating activities. It didn't change behavior. Right. It was used uh, frivolously, that right. money that was distributed. Right. 
Interesting. Okay, I'm not sure that's necessarily a critique. Um, like, if you if you are the whole purpose of universal basic income, right, is that everyone gets it. Right. So if if I'm already earning a good revenue, if I'm already earning good good money, um, then why can I not use it for whatever I want to use it for? Mm-hmm. There's also the fact that I think that is really important to state is that people drive purpose from their work people drive purpose yes. from their jobs yeah. um, so I don't think I don't think universal basic basic income should be there to remove the purpose of the people find in having a reason to be productive right I, mm-hmm. I don't think that I don't think that's necessarily what you're trying to do with UBI for me UBI is almost like a long-term humanitarian um, like safety net like if you are find yourself in a situation where you're not earning for whatever reason you know massive change massive upheaval strong AI takes away all jobs whatever yeah. it happens to be then at least you are not then destitute your your base level that you can reset to is better than absolute poverty right um right. Right. The other, the other critique I've seen from UBI is, um, like Vinnie Gupta um, was sort of saying, um, and, and like I'm no way saying that he's not an advocate or, or interested in it going forwards. But like one of the arguments that we were having when we were having a debate about this was, um, UBI, if you have the existence of monopolies, for example, food monopolies, what all the food monopolies will do will increase the cost of the food. In associated with the new purchasing power ability right. of the of the of the people that they're serving, right. um, which is you know a fairly dystopic view of how things could progress. But you know that there are ways in which you can have um, capture monopolies of, of of large swathes of population in certain scenarios that can play out into the future. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you brought up Vinay. Uh, in talking to him, he seems very bearish on the future of humanity. You don't strike me as a pessimist looking forward. Um, where, where are you finding hope during these dark times? It's not, so it's not that I don't believe there can be bad outcomes. I believe that there can be bad outcomes. It's, it's more that I disagree with the checking out of humanity, right? The, the idea that like people like preppers, right? Uh-huh. Who say, when the shit hits the fan... I have a I have an escape hatch. I have a, a cubby hole I'm going to run away to. Yeah. It's like you are checking out of being part of society. Like for me, I hold hope in humanity's ability to come together and solve problems that ha- that that come across it. I I can't remember the book and the quote that, that it comes from, but humanity has, I think it was The Day the World Stood Still, actually, which is a film um, to was done once, a long time ago, and once recently, with more recently. But um, humanity is never better than at the precipice of a crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is, is that we, we basically have two binary modes, right? One is, one is lazy indifference, and the other is panic. We, don't we, we we struggle to do something in between but for me i think that it's super important for anyone who is part of or believes themselves to be part of helping to shape the future that you should not just be saying these are the pessimistic ways in which humanity may end up but also going this should be where we should be aiming for as an optimistic outcome right yeah. like given that this is the worst case scenario how is the how is a better case forged as well 
And I love that, the visioning part, talking about uh, the future, what hope looks like in practice, not just focusing on the current problems or the problems we've inherited, but we're solving problems across the board at an incredible speed. So I'm glad to hear that you're optimistic about the future as well. Um, I, we're kind of wrapping up here, so what else should we know about you? Well, that's a very broad question. Um, I, I think I think that um, I, I suppose my my closing thought is that similar to to what we were talking about at the start, this technology is immensely exciting. It gets forward. It gets pushed forward by people talking about it. There will be too much hype. There will be some sort of bubble if we're not already in it right now, and that. Um, there will be a point in which people become disillusioned by it because because everything goes in cycles. Mm -hmm. um, what's really important to not lose sight of is the long-term possibility of this technology. So I, I talk about, I, I always say that I'm short-term bearish, long-term bullish, right? I think in the short term, it's going to over-promise and under-deliver. Yeah. In the long term, it's going to fundamentally change how we live as a global society in so many different ways. Um, so th there's two things that I would say. The first is go out and talk about how technology can make things better for humanity and be super and be super positive about it. And when it fails to get there the first time, don't lose faith in it, but pick it up again and try again, because that's the only way in which you succeed. It never works the first time. You just have to keep fighting for it, because there is so much possibility here for us helping the world and helping each other um, and building a better future. But, uh, but it won't work the first time. So just, mm -hmm. just keep trying and keep talking about it. I love it. Uh, final plugs. Um shout outs any anything you want to say before we wrap up uh yeah i mean um please uh if you want to learn more about our technology please go to radixdlt.com on there you'll find all sorts of information about our you know our white papers and how the consensus system works and how our data structures work and why it's not a blockchain and why it's not a dag and why we don't use proof of work and why we don't use proof of stake but can still achieve all of the ends of a trustless decentralized network, as well as our developer tools where you can start to actually build on it because that's what's most important is people going and trying our tools and building on our platform because that's the way that we get to our vision is by those people who have all of the specific visions that our general platform can enable to come to be. I love it, man. Thanks so much for the work you're doing and for taking the time to sit down and chat today. Thank you. Thank all you right. for having me. Appreciate it, man. To learn more about social innovation or get inspired, I recommend reading Life After Google by George Gilder, The Internet of Money by Andreas Anopoulos, and The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve Bank by G. Edward Griffin. A big thanks to my sponsor, Jay Lately, for providing the music for Onward. Jay Lately is a hip-hop artist who's been pursuing his dream since the age of 16 while juggling jobs that improve the lives of youth in Oakland. If you like good music and want to support independent artists, please go check out 
soundcloud.com forward slash just lately. Make sure to subscribe to Onward via iTunes or Anchor FM. Wouldn't want you missing out on another inspiring conversation with an awesome social innovator. Until next time, onward and upward.